Hey, it's Sean Fennessy, one of the hosts of the Prestige TV podcast. HBO's Barry is back for a fourth and final season. And that means I'll be back recapping the show with co-creator and star Bill Hader to dive deep on the themes, scenes, and major moments in the series. Bill will provide insight into how every episode was made and why it's ending. New Prestige TV Barry recaps will go live every Sunday night when the episode ends. So make sure you're subscribed to the Prestige TV podcast wherever you get your podcasts. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Listeners, welcome. This is Sound Only. I'm Justin Cherry. And I'm Mike Peters. We're your Sound Only co-hosts. Here to record our deepest, darkest thoughts this week. As I'm secretly out on vacation, but we recorded this in advance. We're talking about anime. Going back to our roots as an anime podcast. We are talking about something, however, that I, until now, had avoided. <laughs> unintentionally. Not, no shade, but it avoided. We are, we, we, we are, we are talking about something that we, Blind for spot. once, do not have, like, you know, an inordinate amount of useless knowledge about. Right. You know what I'm saying like this is I we are we are bringing to bear our taste and not much else <laughs> for sure for sure <laughs> and like a good a thing I want to set up for listeners up front is like one way to think about that is like yes this is going to be an episode where a listener may well know more than us about the thing we're talking about today which is Gundam Iron Blooded Orphan. Right, we're talking about Iron Blood at Orphans, but I think just talking about like Gundam generally, like that's again, people are going to write in this episode with like. I, I think with like probably we should just use specific anecdotal evidence where it's yeah. just like off mic. We were talking about. I think I brought up Ready Player One offhandedly, yeah. just mm-hmm. talking about something random, and we were talking about how the RX seventy eight shows up. Yeah, and we both sat up. In our in our chairs in the theater, being like getting the congratulatory thrill of being like, I know that one. I had that toy, you know, <laughs> yeah, like. Yeah, exactly. But, but you know, for me personally, it was Hiro Yui in Gundam Wing Endless Waltz, and then there was just static and nothingness for like nearly twenty years, and then there's Iron Blooded Orphans. Like right. I did not, I didn't. <laughs> Yeah. I didn't attempt to 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 ingratiate but I didn't attempt to get myself back into it at any time, you know. It's more so like when the Netflix stuff started popping up like I watched Gundam Hathaway, like the plane sequence just because they did like this really cool fisheye lens thing that I really enjoyed. I didn't know what was going on. This is like this is where we're coming from. It's just yeah. being like, listen, for sure. This show is tight. 
we watched one other thing like it in the past and therefore have sort of a functional understanding of what Gundam is and isn't. Um, but we are not so close to the material as to have had opinions about, say, for instance, Mario Kata joining like uh, the Iron Blooded Orphans team and style, having yeah. their own having their own established style of storytelling and what it might do or whose careless hands might rot something terrible, you know, like on on this beloved franchise. We don't feel that way. Um, we just thought that this show was tight. And because we have our own show, we can talk about it. Absolutely. Know? Correct. Yes. You know what's funny? I've told this story on this podcast before of like the my origin story of like I had friends growing up who were into Dragon Ball. I wasn't super into it, but then I found Sailor Moon and that was my endpoint to anime. But one thing I always leave out of that story is that there was a third group of people I remember growing up, which is like the people who were into Gundam, right? But it's like that third group is like the Navy SEALs of anime fandom. Like without you know what I mean? It's sort of like that was some shit where it's like I'm not I'm I don't know if I'm built for Gundam. You know I think what I it's mean? really like you know like people had Dragon Ball Z, Pokemon, Yu Gi Oh cards. People yeah. had the Gundam toys. Yeah, like yeah. Throwing them at each other. You know what I mean? Like it's <laughs> like I really do remember like Duo Maxwell's and Chang Wufei's Gundams. I remember. Like, I had those two. And when I lost the scythe on Chang Wufei's, like, Gundam, I was distraught. Can I tell you what the interplanetary conflict was about in Gundam Wing? Or how it ultimately resolved itself? Absolutely not. But I know all about the contours on those toys. Yeah. Yeah, listen. Uh, it's like water. Gundam is like water. There are parts of it that have seeped into parts of our childhoods, even if we weren't sort of that tapped in I feel like um, also real quick on the Mario Kata point because otherwise I'm not going to talk about it for the rest of the episode but like look as somebody who actually did in fact watch he's neither uh, I have a lot of thoughts about Mario Kata but it, again it's like I have not seen enough Gundam to know sort of like what her imprint <laughs> is on this relative to the like how the melodrama of Gundam works typically um and I, I suspect we're going to spend a lot of this episode talking about melodrama because I think it's like a really strong suit of Iron-Blooded Orphans. But uh, I don't know, man. Let's get into it's, it. Yeah, it's, it is a very, it's a thing that Iron-Blooded Orphans does well. I wouldn't say that it stands up to infinite rewatches, though. Yeah, uh, sure. Sure. That's fair. Um, can, we you know, can we also talk about like, Child soldiers. <laughs> can we just talk about? <laughs> can we talk about child talk about rebel child soldiers, soldiers and how every every show in anime is actually about child rebel soldiers? Yeah. This this show is not about. This show is not about. Um, you know the subterfuge going on between the Arbrow outer, yeah. you know, force <laughs> regulatory joint fleet or Gowerhorn or you know like any of these other paramilitary, you know, economic block corporation things butting heads with yeah. each other in metal. It's it's really about, it's a show about a group of kids trying for two seasons to find the bass in their voice. Like yeah, it is, yeah, that's great. That's, like, that's what the show is about. 
Like there is all sorts of like, you know, trade disputes and like you learn about different blocks and like, you know, uh, the animosity that's been brewing between different socioeconomics, you know, like castes of people like in this in this world. But the thing that actually matters is that these kids need to learn to. Well, they, they as they as they put it, like, you know, they want to die on their own terms, at least um, having not been able to really live for themselves because they are space rats as they're called yeah. in the show <laughs> which I, I thought was interesting because over the years i feel like the way gundam was always pitched to me right was like for people who knew my specific personality it was always pitched with that sense of like oh you'll like it because it's very geopolitical and maybe maybe the other gundam series are more like that but i actually found it refreshing that this series is it has like you said that kind of yes on paper there is this it, this political intrigue that's driving a lot of the Cordelia but, stuff, but it really does feel like the thing that actually works about the show is that kind of camaraderie brotherhood. Shit. Yeah. I, I would argue that even like the political intrigue of iron blooded orphans gets in the way of its emotional content. Like, I think that like the, I think when I was texting you about it, we were just kind of like, let's do a, let's do an episode about iron blooded orphans. I was just kind of like, yeah, I think that the thing that I was remembering most about this show is the way that it does its its romance triangles and the way mm-hmm. that it handles its relationships, you know, in a way that feels true to the conflict that these characters are living through, but also feels irresponsible, like in a in a like in a fun way. Yeah, like, can you elaborate <laughs> on the irresponsible? Because that was the word you used specifically was irresponsible, and I want you to elaborate on. So there's just like I mean, there's the kind of character and the kind of relationships that he develops in the show that causes people to write think pieces on comicbooks.com, you know, like as in (laughs) what are, what is the screenwriter trying to teach children about, you know, how people should value other humans and et cetera. And is it right that Mikazuki has two wives and all these other things? But really what it is, is I think if you're watching from the beginning of the show to the end, knowing that these are, um, a group of refugees that basically coalesced into their own paramilitary corporation and tried to turn base into home. And the show is also about that. Like, what is what is life like in a time of war when home can only be another person? Um, and how, and like, you know, like, what are the what are the complications that arise from that? Um, I don't think that like you can watch it and be like you want to emulate anything that's going on. Yeah, for <laughs> like, sure, for sure. Even but if there's like a line toward the end where where I forget who says it. It's like, look, you know, what were you guys like looking for all this time? Like you were living in this misery before, and at least now some of you perished honorably. And it's like, yeah, that's kind of the closest you get to this kind of admirable thing about the lifestyle of Tekken, right? Is that like they're at least this, they fa- they found a definition of like honor and self-sacrifice. That works for them. Yeah. yeah. And 
it's also like it feels intrusive when they put other characters in the show to tell them that they're wrong. Like you, you find yourself yeah. siding with the kids against like Miss Maribit. Yeah, you know, all joins. of her se- those scenes make her not look great. It, yeah, I mean, annoying. like, but there are like, I mean, there are there are annoying two dimensional <laughs> characters in the show, just like there are like you know the reliable Gundam tropes of the mass man, yeah. the stoic protagonist. Like, there's also. Like she's just put in there to concern troll. Like we need yeah, to, yeah. we need to have some sort of emotional control on these teenagers who t- only talk about revenge and, <laughs> you know, like what they would, you know, like reasons they would die for one another. You know, yeah. um, and then like you know, Cadelia Ina Bernstein is just is literally just like white feminism, just just straight <laughs> up. Like, all, like, <laughs> She's like, I don't want to like, I don't want to be president. I want to be a symbol of hope. Is something that she says yeah, multiple but, times. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I want to, I want to be the maiden of revolution. The maiden of revolution, uh, which is like a yeah. fire title. But yeah, you're right. Yeah, the 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 political princess. You know, yeah. like it's also like a, a Gundam trope. Uh, yeah, but yeah, it is primarily about like these kids learning to be teenagers and then these teenagers learning to be men or trying to be, you know, with the few disparate like male role models that they have or role models period that they have. Like, and it's also like kind of heartrending to see them reach out for it and then it not be there, you know? Um, That's what the show is really about. Not the, like the geopolitical stuff. Yeah, and it's also, like, to that point, to the child rebel soldier, you know, boys in arms thing. It's like, that is a thing anime gets to do a lot compared to, I think, other stuff, right? To tell these stories about, like, nascent masculinity. And that that does feel nice about this show. It feels, it's like, yeah. it's bro shit, you know? It's just some bro shit in a lot of ways. Yeah, Even though, I mean, it, like, women love Gundam, and yet, like, this show. It really is, like, a bunch of, like, ropey, stringy teenagers, like, you know, doing pull-up challenges in the galleys <laughs> of a ship, you know? Like, it's just very much, it's like that same thing that uh, I was talking about when I was talking about SAS Rogue Heroes, which isn't, like, an amazing show, but it's a good hang for that reason where it's a show about like it's a coming of age show that's like also sort of like what to do while you're waiting mm-hmm. um like they are attempting to you know form a regiment in their own right the same way that Tekken is trying to become a respected paramilitary corporation but in the like you know intervening time they are still 17 and 18 years old you know like the the oldest of them, the most mature of them, is seventeen or eighteen years old. So like the hijinks follow that. Yeah, you know, for sure. Um, like there's a there's this really cute sequence in the show where Ride, um, who like you actually that's another thing about the show is that you get to see them grow up over two seasons. Yeah, like uh, so Ride starts as one of the younger kids, and by the end of the show he's like a you know. A lieutenant, a higher up, or whatever. But I think midway through the first season, once Tekken starts finally getting some contracts, coming into money, running transport for people, there's this one episode where they're talking about 
well, I think it's Miss Barabet or somebody is telling Orga about, you know, you got to let you get they got to have R&R. You got to do you got to do nice stuff for your men or whatever. And I think they bought like a shit ton of donuts or something. Yeah. And Ride like gets grabs up like, you know, two arms full and is carrying them off. And they're like, you know, chastising. You got to share with the rest of the kids. He's just like, shut up. OK. And then I, I think it comes back like maybe an episode or two later that he's stored all the donuts in his locker. And he's just like, I actually only, I didn't even eat any of these. Like, I just keep them around because you know how the younger kids cry sometimes. Yeah, oh, yeah. And it's like, you get to see those, like, those quiet moments in the show are so much better than all the action set pieces. Yeah, for sure. Yes, I agree with that for sure. In fact, I'm glad you, I'm glad you articulated that sentence because about the action set pieces. What, what, do you, what do you think of the action of this show? I will say that every time I am showing Iron Blooded Orphans to a friend, like I skip straight to episode, like, what was it? Set, it was like 11 or 12 or 13 of season two when they have to fight the angel because that's the best action sequence in the whole show. Okay. When they take, because uh, it's, it, it's basically, I set this up a little bit. Um, the show kind of threads out bits of Gundam history just enough to kind of like give you an idea of why these people at Nehru suits are, you know, clomping their heels <laughs> yeah. through whatever, you know, like, so just, they talk about the Calamity War and like why Gundams existed in the first place. Um, and basically angels were like the nuclear weapons that these, you know, extraterrestrial uh, earth blocks had like developed to war against each other. But then the angels, you know, started operating on their own. And so they needed to create demons to chase them down. And the demons were the Gundams. So the angels are actually stylized like, you know, Ezekiel 1, 3 in the Bible. You know, like they have mm. like all, they have as many wings and as faces as angels are supposed to have. And it has this one beak-like looking head thing that shoots out a, uh, like a, a beam weapon. And it's just this like sort of, it's bigger by several orders of magnitude than any robot you've seen in the show so far. But like, you know, while the, the, the forces on the ground, there's a couple Gundams assembled there or trying to get their shit together. Mikazuki, who is like, you know, our stoic protagonist, it's him and Orga are like the, you know, the one and the two. But Mika does all the hard work, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he looks like uh, it too, because his body is like... His, oh. is, he's just like stringy and like there's nothing but muscle on him, yeah, you know? Yeah. And... By this stage in the show, there's also uh, this race against the clock thing of permanent damage. Because every time he takes the limiters off in in his Gundam, like when he gets out of it, he loses functionality in a, in a body part. By this point, he's yeah. lost his right arm. Right. And at the end of the fight, he loses his whole right side. But like it's it's all about the uh, the immediate objective in front of him is right. the only thing that matters to Mika. So it's like this awesome sequence gets set up where all these people are, these Gundams are being like, they're like, all right, you go, you got it, you got it, you got it, you got it. 
And then Mika shows up at the very end of the episode and he starts talking to his Gundam who's called Barbatos because it's like established that the Neuralink connection is one that flows both ways. Right. You know, it stores all of the history from all of his battles over 700 years. And because it was built with the express purpose of taking down angels, it gets really excited when it sees one. So they start talking to each other, but he's just like, all right, Barbatos, the enemy is right in front of us. I'm going to take these chains off of you. And then the eyes change from green to red on the robot and like it goes into sport mode and starts it starts the <laughs> it starts the power up noise at yeah. the very end of the episode and it's such a good note for it to end on and then the next episode starts and i always show both to yeah. this to this theoretical friend <laughs> yeah yeah I'd be like, you got to sit down for 45 <laughs> minutes we're going to watch this whole thing this is why you want, you're going to want to watch both seasons of the show and the next starts with Orga talking to uh, McMurdo Barrison, the head of Tawaz, which is like, I guess if there are government-owned military corporations, there are ones in the civil sector that came up from like being basically mob bosses or whatever. And McMurdo Barrison is the latter. Um, and he's talking to Orga about like, you know, the battle against the angel, which is really, despite it being like all about, you know, just being this death-defying thing, it's all about Tekken and raising their reps so that they can, you know, get more contracts for more money and, you know, make an actual living out of this thing that's nearly killing them. Mm-hmm. So anyway, he's talking to Bernard Barrison, he's just like, and Barrison's just like, all right, so regale me with you know the the king of the the adventures of the king of mars and his merry men and they jump back into the action sequence and it is like it's really the way that barbatos moves around and fights the angel is exactly how tekadin moves around and handles himself over the course of the show like it's just sort of willing to sacrifice body parts as long as i can get at its neck and like you know and they're as they you know pull back from after Mika actually successfully kills it. I forget exactly who's talking, but like they're I think it's like in a Gallerhorn office, and it's McGillis talking to a subordinate. I think, and the subordinate's just kind of like, yeah, I I wouldn't exactly call the way that you know the that the Barbatos fought beautiful. You know, I can't really commend it at all. <laughs> like even though it's like this awesome spectacle. And he's tearing this thing limb from limb, but he's losing body parts in the process. And it's just incredible. Everyone's in awe. But he's, everyone also is thinking like, that is totally unsustainable. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I, like it is, the action sequences in space leave a little to, to be desired. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. 
To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore a seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. That, thank you. Okay. We, we at least reached that conclusion together because I, that I had a problem with. Some of the space background fights. Yeah. That would be my main complaint about the action. Is that kind of, I think that's where the show kind of gets a little, um, I don't know. It almost feels like you could take the way that the fights flow in space. Like you could sort of scramble the sequence of like different movements and you wouldn't really notice, you know, it gets a little too close up for me in space, but a lot of, yeah, I don't know. I think like the thing in space is where you like the, 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 the action sequences in space where you remember that this show is a is a space opera and not like you know any of the other genres we might have mentioned so far because like I think the action sequences in space with the exception of like a few say like when Naze gets given up to Gallerhorn for using like an illegal weapon and they like you know start the assault on the turbines and that's meant to look like, you know, tragic, like waste, like, you know, it's this big send off for two characters that you've gotten attached to. Um, and often it's like, those are the points being made with like the, the, the space action. And I mean, the stuff that is, there's two really good action sequences, actually. This like, cause it's the, every time that they're like the one on, there's three, there's the one on earth against Ayn. Mm-hmm. Yeah, There's, yes, that's shit is fire. Yes. The one where, yeah, when he stabs him, <laughs> he stabs him and he goes, shut up. Like that. <laughs> that shit was so fire. great. I love it because I was just like stomping around and swinging his axes everywhere yeah. and talking talking about what he's owed and then like Mika's and when the first like, axe goes when he loses the first axe it's like oh buddy <laughs> <laughs> no no it's like it's literally when when Mika realizes that like you have to strike with a katana at an angle in, in the space between the armor plates and it takes him like three quarters of the fight to figure that out and then once he get it and once he gets it it's like Gervonta Davis realizing that oh like Ryan Garcia's crowd me a little bit I'm gonna stick this right in his in his liver <laughs> like this is it's the exact same sort of knowing like oh okay I got it you like, solved the puzzle right yeah um so there's that one there is the fight against the angel and then there's the final stand on I can't remember if it's Mars or Earth like at the very end like when they've been scapegoated and there's no one coming to the rescue. And it's just like Mika going balls to the wall for like 20 minutes. <laughs> like um, the grounded stuff just feels like there's there's just greater stakes to all of it. Yeah. Like um, uh than than this than the space than the space encounters do. Um and I mean, I wonder if that's a product of 
you know, them literally being on the ground versus in space. Yeah. Um, to, to me, it was that, yeah, it's the Carter fight. It's the fight with like Mika and Carter where like Carter's like, oh, I challenge you to endure. I mean, that <laughs> shit was so hot. Like, oh my, like, okay, let's set this up completely because this <laughs> is, is amazing <laughs> this it's because it, it's not a fight like it's, it's like, not I, even a fight honestly. i i love i love that sequence in the ep like that shit is incredible okay so <laughs> set this up again uh miss maribet is sort of like put on the isaribi or uh the Ariadne, one of the Tekken ships, like as like a liaison or just to be the adult in the room for real, just to be like, hey, if you're going to go on deep space missions, you need to have a dedicated medical professional on board, like <laughs> things like that. But also to say like, you know, this isn't what Biscuit would have wanted, you yeah. know, like we, we got to, we need to come together. The mission is a protection one, not about getting revenge against the people who killed your friends. And it's like so light and chiding and matronly that you're like, shut up by the time <laughs> like this happens, you know, because Cardi Issue, how to describe Cardi Issue? She sucks. That's how to describe her. She fucking sucks, bro. Gigantic <laughs> hair, even bigger sense of entitlement, like no hands at all, like. Imagine she was like, like a fucking cyberpunk 2077 character. I just hate her. <laughs> yeah, you know, and just kind of like constantly stomps around going mine, mine, mine yeah. type shit, you know? Yeah. Anyway, uh, she basically is a bit of a throwback to like the 70s air, like version of the show where people show up and announce themselves and their attentions yeah. and give you some and give you parameters and we'll give you time to, you know, like think about a response, send your envoy type shit. Yeah. And it's, and again, after we've just, we've spent a long time describing these kids, they don't give a fuck. Like, so it's basically, she killed one of their friends in a prior mission. And then she shows up while they're on an escort mission trying to take uh, Mr. Mock and I to some election so that they can change the world, blah, 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 blah. And the Outer Earth Regulatory Joint Fleet, which I think is the full name of the thing that uh, Cardi she runs, like, they're all, like, it's her plus a bunch of blonde yes-men, right? And they're all dweebs. And they show up and they line themselves across the train track because they're the, the Tekken and Mr. Mock and I are traveling on a bullet train. And they stop, they, they get across the tracks and they're just kind of like, we're here to stop the progress of blah, 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 blah. And she gives this speech and she, you know, steps out of her mech and onto the shoulder and stands astride the shoulder guard and says, we'll give you five minutes to respond. No, she says 30. That's how obnoxious oh, it she is. Said, She's like, she oh, says she said 30, 30 minutes to send three of your best pilots. Or and <laughs> so, and like, like and then, so in the, so in the bowels of the, in the bowels of the train, like a couple of the members are being like, she said, what? All right. I guess, you know, like, well, actually, you know what? Why don't we just send five? Yeah, it's just like, <laughs> like, why don't we just send five? Like, I mean, like, we got that many mechs on board, you know? Like, we could just take them, no numbers. And as they're having this conversation, 
you hear a giant kachung sound. <laughs> and it's and it's Mika launching off of the train directly at her before she has a chance to get back <laughs> to get back in her robot. And he lays waste he to lays these the motherfuckers. Out, <laughs> the first dude he kills, like he doesn't he gets like one line out and he's just dead. His whole shit yeah, is stomped it, into the ground. Yeah, like he like he flies out, like gets hit in his stomach, like is lying <laughs> on the ground, bleeding from his eye and his mouth, talking about I can still destroy the track. And then like Mika just stomps on the cockpit and kills him. Like it's basically like it is the scariest that Mika has been up to that point to everyone. Like, yeah. I mean, he frightens everybody on Despite the train. Despite having no, like, there's no sense of, he doesn't do this in this roaring way, right? It's like, he's so deadpan the whole time. And he's like, fuck you. And he just, like, stomps the guy's <laughs> skull in and moves on. Yeah, That's the whole like, vibe of the fight. Like, he never yells. Like, there's no, like, it's <gasps> just... It's none of that, yeah. Just business-like, like, th this person is in our way and slowing us down, and I'm annoyed about it. Yeah. That, and, that's the, the thing when I was asking you about the action of the show, right? It's like, one thing I think is really interesting about this, um, I don't know, there's sometimes with action shows where it can feel kind of like, remember when we talked about Castlevania on this pod, and it's like, I sing the praises of that show all day, right? Because that's... It's not robot action, right? It's character action. But that's a show where so much is expressed in just how characters move and how the, the movement and the fight choreography is sort of drawn. Whereas I think a lot of the times, the best moments of fights in Iron-Blooded Orphans, it'll just be, be admiring, like, Mika's attitude, frankly, like it, regardless of the quality of or, the animation of the fight, it's just that like the shit that he says and how he says it. So it's so like dry. Like yeah. it's just like I think like the show is not always concerned with giving you the title fight, you know? Like it's more so like like as I mean, like if it was concerned about like let's put the two most singular awesome fighters and mechs across from each other like Mika would have duped it out with uh, Vidar for like two episodes or whatever but mm. that's not what the show like it's like the action that you remember that sticks the most is when like um, is when like you know one of these kids gets their moment in the sun like uh, like Akihiro killing Yakujan like, cause he's just like, <laughs> cause Aguirre is getting beat up, like in this la in this final, like, uh, you know, like we'll we'll hold them off and buy you time thing at the yeah. end of the show. Iakujan is just this totally, like you would suspect, affable nitwit that is put into this place of power and chases down foes real and imagined with like this unearned sense of like grandiosity like it's basically like he like he has like this 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 group of men that report to him and he has his own regiment and he's one of these higher ups at Gallarhorn but he's a total idiot so like it's it's a running gag that his there's this running gag in the show where his subordinate Julia de Julius um, 
is just kind of like constantly getting in these withering asides, like every single time he gives an order or decides that he wants to do something. And it's exactly what you would say if you were standing next to him. But he keeps barging in and just ruining everything for everyone, like throughout the second season. Um, accidentally killing important characters, purposefully killing important characters with a dumb smirk on his face. And the entire time, Akira has been developing these gigantic garden shear weapons. And he uses them like maybe twice. And he only knows Iak Kujan by name because, you know, like he, I, Iak Kujan, have done the whatever thing. <laughs> And so, like, he's, he, you know, not needing to be there. His forces already having won the conflict, he goes down to the planet surface to get some licks in. And, like, when the, I can't, I don't know who does the voice acting for Akihiro, but, like, when he says it, it's like, you can really hear that he cannot believe, he's about to die. Like, he's about to die for real. Like, he's getting banged up. But he's just like, wait a minute, Iakujan? <laughs> I can't believe my luck. <laughs> and he takes out the shears and crushes him slowly. And it's so satisfying. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, like, it's that sort of like broiness of the yeah. show yeah. that kind of comes to the fore that is enjoyable, you know, even though like the ending is sad and the, you know, the stakes are the stakes. Like it's still, you know, like it gets its it gets its shots in, it gets its jokes off. It's a series of uh, moments. Um, wait, by the way, can confirm you sub or dub in this case? People want to know. Would you watch? Well, there's the second season. You can. It's all is Japanese, right? For the first season, I watched English. I'll be honest. Did you watch English or Japanese for the? Oh, I've watched both. I watched oh, really? both, okay. like because like the the English, like I'm. The first time I watched it, I watched it in English. The second time I watched it in English. And the third time okay. I actually watched it uh, with subs. Okay. And like I was doing that up until I needed to be doing something in addition yeah, to yeah, watching. Yeah, you know how it is. Yeah, you know how it is. <laughs> but anyway, like there are some things to find, you know, in like things that get a little bit lost in translation with English voice acting over like, you know, the original Japanese. I think that like you would be sadder about the kid's situation if you watched it in with subs. Really? Um, because like there's just kind of smaller things like in, I think it's like in the very first episode where they're talking about, um, the Orga's talking with uh, the old man about um, life at CGS, basically. And, you know, how, because I mean, like, if you're watching it in English, there's just like a bunch of really horrible, paunchy old men, you know? Yeah. But if you're watching it with subs, he says something sitting in, uh, sitting in one of the ports with the old man when he's talking about like the, the surgery, the Leia Vignana surgery, which is basically a similar thing to what they did to Hiro Yui and Gundam Wing, where they were talking about he was genetically engineered to be the perfect soldier. 
Uh, Mikazuki's like a similar way because he had the Leia Vignana surgery three times. It's just this thing that helps them interface with like their mech suits without using the controls or whatever. Like, you know, you can move it by thinking, whatever. Anyway, um, he was talking about the surgery and how Orga didn't, like he didn't cry. Like it's supposed to be incredibly painful. Yeah. They don't give you any anesthetic. It kills half of the people that, you know, like get it. But he didn't cry while he was getting the surgery. And he was just like, yeah, they would have punched me if I did. And, you know, like it's sort of like, you know, I'm a tough guy in English. And then he goes on to say in the original Japanese, and the subtitles aren't great on either one, but he says something like, yeah, we're either cannon fodder or toys for the CGS when they get bored. Which made me think that there was also a sexual element yeah. to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I mean, like, I didn't catch that. that I right. mean, like, you can, I you didn't can, catch that, yeah. it's definitely like you're, you, you can, like, it can be implied if you think about the way that child rebel soldiers would be, you know, like, or how they might be treated based upon what you might have read elsewhere and other, like, you know, real world conflicts, et cetera. But I mean, like, and just knowing about like the dynamic of power that they set up in the first place. Uh, but like he's, he nearly says it explicitly in, in like with subs. So I think that there's like, obviously if I wanted to watch more closely, there's more stuff. Like it's probably more emotional content to, to be wrong from it. But I mean, the, the voice acting in the English version is really so good too, though. Like yeah. I, I really love Eugene's character. Like, here's the thing: like, you were never gonna talk me out of watching it in, in English the first time through. Just when I realized that half of the cast of Persona Five is the English voice cast for this, and it's just like it, it's specifically that Cadelia and Golly Golly are both like they they're both like characters who basically are their characters from Persona Five, like in a way that is just funny to watch. It feels like watching them. I don't know. It's it's just yeah. I I like the English voice cast a lot, but I take all of your points about kind of the emotional texture probably being a little different. And it is it, it is such an interesting thing with anime too, right? That like people have those huge sub versus dub debates, but I really think it's important that different kind of different series and different genres or like styles of series like that question matters more kind of depending on like what exactly you're watching right like sometimes the difference between the sub and the dub is like not really that important but like sometimes yeah it does feel like there's like a, t- a texture thing right like even if yeah, you don't there's yeah like a there's like a patina thing going on where it's just like you don't catch it if you're not like if you're if you if you're not watching the sub version, but that being said, like, um, say like a slower build thing where like it really matters, like the inflection of somebody's voice, or like you know, like it's a slower build, or there isn't as much action, or the emotions aren't as overwrought. Like say like in Monster, like it might yeah. behoove you to watch it in the original language, like. Right. Because you'll definitely, you know, pick up on some things that you wouldn't have. Because, I mean, also, like, voice acting post-2015 in English is way better than at any earlier yeah. point. Like, yeah. Yeah. That, I mean, that's <laughs> real. That's an episode topic, to be honest with you. Um, 
can I actually had a pin stuck in something that I want to talk about, which is what do what do we think of Biscuit? Like part of me thinks Biscuit is the best character. I think I I, like part of me. I really think (laughs) Eugene is like is is the most improved player, just because like I I fucking love the note of him wearing that stupid tie without a shirt underneath it, just because it makes him look like more of an adult. (laughs) Um, and also like uh, when he had to fly both of the ships, like by plugging into the Alea Vignana system, and then his like the over like the the information overload is too much for his brain, and his nose starts to bleed, <laughs> and then like everybody's worrying about him. And there's, a, there's that one shot where he turns around after he successfully flies both ships. He's just like, "Hey, did I look cool?" <laughs> <laughs> He's just like, who cares about who cares about stuff like that? Can't you tell that love and kindness is what's important? <laughs> I love you, G, man. Um, yo, to your point about most, impre- it's like the other television show I've been watching recently is like I've been watching Shameless. I don't know if you ever mm-hmm. watched Shameless, but like that's a show where that show went on for long enough, and also like that show has so many like young characters. And like young actors. So you're like literally watching them grow up through several seasons of television. And it's just like kind of fascinating. And yet, like with something like season one to season two of Iron Blooded Orphans, even though it's it's fucking animation, right? It's not the same as literally watching dude from the bear grow up on a television show. And yet it is that kind of palpable thing of like, wow, look at how look at how far these characters have come. You know what I mean? I don't know. Yeah, I, it definitely is kind of like it's it's yeah. I mean, like it's real. It's it's real. Not just to like watch them change physically, because I mean those are minor differences, but to like like to gain greater emotional control and yeah. to like respond to things differently. Like it's very like a like you get to see that. Yeah. Which is like why the show is as good as it is. For sure. For sure. Um, do we have anything else about Iron Blooded Orphans or Gundam in general? Not that I have watched a ton of other Gundam in general. But. Yeah, nah. We uh, we we do not have have more to offer. Although I was I was talking to Tyler from Crunchyroll and I I, I think when I um met him too, he was talking about Witch from Mercury. I'm definitely going to watch Witch from Mercury. You know what I mean? It's like, I at least feel like after all these years, I finally got an in to Gundam. And I feel like this is like a successful viewing experience. And enough people seem to be really like hype on... Into it. Yeah. yeah, Mercury. So I'm going to go for it, I think. Um, And yeah, that was always the other thing too for the longest time, right? Which is why I'm glad you made the recommendation for Iron Blood Orphans because it's just like, Otherwise, if you come to Gundam without a super strong sort of just fundamental response to the idea of watching a mech thing, it's kind of like Gundam, you're just going to you're going to succumb to this decision paralysis of like, okay, but which one do you start with? Which I feel like I went through for like eight years with Gundam yeah. of like, I have no idea which one to start with. And you don't want to get it wrong, right? Because you don't want to watch one that's like, oh, that was all right. And then you're just sort of like, you're never getting, you know what I mean? You want your first impression to be right, but there's so many potential first impressions you could have of Gundam. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, it's definitely, 
it's it's uh it's a series that plays around with genre but also like that doesn't repeat characters and like takes place at it's difficult to place them on a timeline. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and on top of that, like the art styles of a lot of them are very different. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I mean, like Witch for Mercury, I think is a is a confident next step. Yeah. Okay. Uh, listeners, by all means, I assume some of you are know pulling all your about hair that, out by yeah. now. Yeah. No, I think people give us grace with something like this. People people know that they can email us at soundonlypod at gmail.com with their own thoughts about Gundam, uh, to talk about their own experience with Gundam, their own thoughts about where to go next for two idiots who have a relatively sort of like limited exposure to the series. Um, like I said, soundonlypod at gmail.com. I'm Justin Charity. And I'm Michael Peters. Shouts out once again to our producer, Stefan Anderson. We'll see y'all next week. <laughs>